Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a podcast helping academics and former academics to find wellness, meaning, purpose, and freedom in life and career. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hello. Welcome to episode 26. Glad you're here. How are you doing? Yes, I am doing okay. I will say that I've spent multiple hours today trying to get this podcast episode out, and I have run into technical difficulty after technical difficulty after technical difficulty. It has been a rough one. So I come to you right now with some sense of gratitude, like, yay, it's happening, finally. And on the other hand, there's that piece of me that's kind of like tight and angry, (laughs) right? And irritated. And why, why has this been so hard today? Um, I've lost out on my Sunday, blah, blah, blah. And as I say all of that, I'm reminded that, you know, the universe has its time. (laughs) We don't get to decide when things happen and how long things take. They all have their own sort of divine timing. And honestly, that's a really good metaphor for today's interview. I interviewed Dr. Shadon Shahaf, and you will hear all about divine timing and how she found herself in a really beautiful place post-academia. But that wasn't without a lot of struggle. And um, yeah, you're going to learn a lot from her today. I'm really, really excited for you to hear the interview. The other thing I want to mention, though, before we get into the interview is that I do have my self-compassion class for job seekers, um, for job seekers who are either on the academic job market or the Altac job market. If you are somebody who is going through the stress and the anxiety and the fear and the exhaustion that comes with being on the job market, I invite you to take my free self-compassion class. It is going to be over the course of six weeks and we just meet for one hour over Zoom each week. And you'll get to talk to other people, build community, we'll do some meditations together, you'll learn how to talk to your inner critic. It's it's a good time. And in last week's episode, I know I talked about it a little bit, I, I said that there's a lot of good, strong research on this topic, and self compassion is a skill that can really build your well-being and um, help you to become more resilient, which is what you need when you're in the middle of a job search, right? So yeah, if you are interested in joining me for this, the class begins October 15th and it will run every Thursday for six weeks. Um, We will end November 19th, which is just a week before the Thanksgiving holiday. So if you're interested, email me at danielle at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Again, it's danielle at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Put in the subject line course. And if I can just get, you know, a small group of people together to do this course, um, I'll be able to have a a little pilot course done and I'll be able to move forward with... um, you know, perfecting it in the future. So if you're willing to help out with that and get some good sort of resources to help you in your job search in the meantime, send me an email. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to talk. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is talk to people individually before the class actually starts, because I want to have that one-on-one connection before we connect via Zoom. So yeah, I guess that's where I'm at right now. Thank you for joining me. And here is this magnificent 
interview. Take care. Hello, everyone. Today we're talking to Dr. Sharon Shahaf, and she is a writing and life coach for academics, former academics, and others and the creator of a Facebook group called Academic Writers Unblock, where she teaches academic writers how to unblock their creative flow and actually get writing. Shadone, how are you? It's so good to have you. I'm great, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I want to, I mean, we've been talking uh, a bit before, we started recording and there's a lot I want to talk about because I think you and I are both sort of on the same page in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's um, let's just start by getting a sense of where you were in academia, you know, why the PhD, why did you, why the academic route, what felt good about it at the time and why did you end up leaving? Well, I was born, no, I'm kidding, but it's, it's a long story, <laughs> right? It's always a long story, but um, yeah, yeah. long story short, uh, I'm Israeli, as you can tell by my accent. I, um, I got my BA and MA actually in, in Israel, in Tel Aviv University. And back at the time, I don't think I ever perceived or imagined that academia can, can actually be a job. Um, I, I, I would always tell my students I loved school so much that I just never never left until it became a, a job and a career. So that's kind of, I think, what really led me was always the passion for knowledge. Um, I really loved uh, literature, and my BA was in comparative literature. And um, and then I added uh, a component of communication because I, I was always really interested in how communication, representation, and, you know, uh, how our society comes together through a mediated reality, put it that way. I don't know that I was able to say, you know, to put it that well back then, but that was, that was the, um, the impulse. And so I got my BA and then I was just so, you know, I was a good student. I enjoyed it. I was uh, recognized. I was invited to, to do the MAs in uh, the comparative literature department and then be a teaching assistant at, in both. So, you know, getting involved in teaching my own classes through, it's called a teaching assistant, but you actually write, you, you teach independently, um, which academics know. But so I then, my, during my MA years, I was uh, teaching both in comparative literature and in the uh, Department of Communication. Um, and it was really interesting because my research, you know, I was in comparative literature, but I was trying to write about television. And it didn't really fit in it. I, I always felt like the, um, you know, my scholarship was in running in between these two buildings because uh, literature was in the humanities and uh, in Tel Aviv University and uh, communication was in the uh, social science building. I felt like I was kind of in between. Um, also, you know, in Israel, you you don't really, you can't really make a living, you know, through your, I mean, I guess nobody can really make a living through uh, their MATA ship. So I also had a career in Israel. I was, um, I was the assistant to the editor uh, of uh, Galeria, which is kind of like the arts and leisure section of Aaretz, which is Israel's, I guess, New York, kind of New York Time-ish type uh, newspaper. It was a really fantastic experience. So throughout my MA years, I was TAing uh, in two departments and then in some other, you know, private colleges around Tel Aviv and also um, developing a lot of hands-on production experience by doing so, you know, I was just having the time of my life doing all of these things. As I was uh, nearing completion, especially with my thesis, it became very apparent that, you know, running in between the buildings was not going to be enough. And I was really um, eager to find a place, a disciplinary home for the kind of work I wanted to do, uh, which was a humanities-based approach, kind of dealing with television and its role um, in our world. And that kind of, alongside... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to get to the whole geopolitical, you know, Israel in the 90s went through um, some very turbulent times. Um, we kind of grew up with 
the coming of age of the Oslo Agreement. And we thought in the 90s, we were sure we were going to have a new Middle East and it's going to be a peace, peace on earth and peace with the Palestinians. And then they assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and the bloody math of uh, that Oslo Accord. After that, you know, there was just rounds and rounds of like terror attacks on Israelis and Israeli, you know, Israel retaliation. And it just became this blood cycle. And I was living in the midst of uh, of it in Tel Aviv, which was hit very hard. So, you know, you just could not go on a bus or in a coffee shop without calculating, you know, is it worth it? Because I might be exploded, you know? So it was really, and, you know, as a left-leaning, yeah. So, you know, that's all in my memoir because I also write memoir. Um, so, you know, also as a left-leaning person, uh, and especially, you know, with the kind of uh, work that I did, I, I was doing a lot of post-colonial in Israel. It was, um, there was a robust post-Zionist debate in in the lefty kind of academia. Um, it was kind of hard to reconcile my, you know, it was, it was very marginalized having this, understanding that the occupation is deeply amoral and in a way we're paying the price for that immorality not to say that it's okay to explode yourself on a civilian bus and kill children and you know uh civilians but it was just this kind of dissonance it was so hard to live through when it felt hopeless because the government stopped trying to talk to each other and make peace so all of this together really pushed me alongside many, many of my friends at the time who had any interest in academia, it was it was a very obvious way out. You know, if you would apply for a PhD in the United States, and since I already wanted to do my PhD, you know, it, it felt like, um, it, it didn't even feel like a choice. It felt like the only way to go forward. So I applied, uh, which, you know, maybe another time we can talk about, you know, applying internationally, you know, uh, without having that that framework of understanding what the system you're applying to is, is its own craziness. Um, but I guess I did, you know, I re- I'm a very thorough researcher. I researched the heck out of it and I figured out a way to put together an application that became competitive enough to give me, it's kind of funny, the two schools that that, you know, in retrospect, I know were the best fit, uh, did get interested. And I finally decided to come to, um, to go to Texas, to the radio television film department in University of uh, Texas in Austin. It was like weirdly a homecoming because, you know, RTF, uh, were j- it's one of the most robust programs for television scholarship in the United States. And, um, it just, I, I, the first week taking, you know, uh, feminist television studies and the historiography for television scholars, I just, I was so high. I felt so <laughs> intoxicated. I was walking in cloud nine and I said, I knew it. There should be a discipline called TV studies. It was, uh, you know, a revelation. Everybody thought I was mad, but I was like, you don't understand. You know, the literature people would tell me why you're studying TV and the communication people were quantitative and wanted me to count how many times they, you know, say freedom fighter instead of terrorist or whatever. And and yeah, so that was a long answer, I think. But um, that, you know, I got to Texas. I was like a kid in a candy store. I really enjoyed I got such an incredible experience um, doing grad school, I think. I think honestly that might have ruined it for me for when it became a career because it was just too much fun. Um, I really enjoyed all my classes. I was the kind of graduate student that, you know, I immediately got became involved with the conference of my area, and I, you know, became active in uh, special interest groups. Uh, this, you know, and, and initiating within so within the television scholarship uh, special interest group. In uh, Society for Cinema and Media Studies, which is the main organization for my field, I uh, became very active in in bringing a more global television, you know, a more diverse um, set of, of voices and people like, you know, the up-and-coming graduate students, uh, bringing together all the people that were trained in the United States um, and around that feeling that we had, that we were being marginalized within that field. But I mean, I will say the field had a lot of interest, right? But we kept feeling like, well, you know, when you guys say television, you mean American television. And that's a big thing to admit. You know, I would go from panel to panel and say, just add American. You know, it was like television and gender. Just add American television and gender to your, because you're not really talking Mm -hmm. about 
our television. So anyways, that became a very fertile gap for me because, you know, when you are in a field and you're, you love the field, but you see how what you bring and your perspective really shines a light on something that the field, it's in the blind spot of the field. Um, that's a very, uh, it's a really good friction to have. And yeah, that was, yeah. right. So that was recognized also, I think, outside. And I, I really, I came out of grad school with, um, you know, a lot of um, um, publications and uh, especially a, a co-edited collection that I brought together uh, again, through that conference, I, as a graduate student, you know, so I organized a, a panel and it became a double panel and it was so well received that it then became a book proposal for a collect, for a collection that I co-edited with, uh, the wonderful Tasha Owen, uh, who's a more senior, uh, American, uh, television scholar with Israeli background. So, you know, it was a good fit. And anyways, long story short, I kind of really just, uh, found, I felt like I found, a really nice um, fit with the field. And yeah, now we can talk about when it came into me, you know, then, you know, it was 2008. I wasn't, I was on my fourth year. I wasn't planning to go on the market. I was in fact pregnant, you know, so um, it was, it was before it was 07. Right. But anyways, uh, everybody, you know, I was too successful in a way because I was headhunted for the job. I mean, people came to me and asked me, Hey, apply for this job. Uh, and, um, you know, when you look back and you're like, oh, I wish I had it. That's, I, I think being pregnant, um, I, I had fantastic funding for two more years. Uh, I really think probably I should have just stayed there and enjoyed the funding, have the baby, learn what it is to be a mom and finish the dissertation more leisurely. But I did not do that. I mm-hmm. took the job. I was so pregnant. Most of us would have, I right? think. <laughs> yes. Accept uh, that you don't have to take a job just because it's the, you know, it could be the right job in the wrong time, which was my case. Because the same circumstances that led me to be such a promising candidate, uh, to be headhunted in a year where there were no, no jobs, all of that stuff would remain true a year later or two years later. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. we tend to, we're so anxious and we tend to want to hedge. And it's like, oh, so, I mean, even speaking about it, my heart starts racing. It's all so devoid of residing in your self-worth. You constantly, you know, this whole academic mindset that you're constantly being uh, measured up against other people and, you know, the job you have or whatever it is, the number of publications, I really think that a lot of people make a lot of mistakes in the way that I made that mistake. I mean, I would never tell my own PhD student, oh, great, you're pregnant and you just got a job offer and your dissertation is about, you know, what, 30% written. (laughs) Yeah, take the job. It will work out. (laughs) You know, it's just how it was never going to really work out. So I made it work. I finished, but it was the, the cost was really steep. Um, I had a you know newborn and I was moving cross country from Texas to Georgia, you know, without wow. having finished and had to finish while breastfeeding and pumping and, you know, taking a plane back to go defend. I mean, wow. it, was, it was just, it was brutal. And, you know, doing at the same time, doing orientation for this new job, um, again, with the breast pump, you know, coming with me to campus. Oh my um, gosh. Oh my it, gosh. It was just not sustainable. And I just wish, you know, again, I give people advice that I wish they had given me. If if you reside in your self-worth and you did everything right in graduate school, you need to have an exit strategy that's not rush, that's not dependent on, oh my God, you know, every job is going to be the last job on earth. If you're the person that you know, there are still jobs out there. I mean, I don't know with Corona and everything, but, you know, in general, right, there are some, a, a few jobs. And if you are one of those people that um, is spiking interest because you have all the ingredients and you have a, a very alive research agenda and you have a very um, robust body of work that's emerging um, and everything that, you know, in a good dissertation project that attracts people and a good track record in your area conference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this idea that uh, it's, be- it's always better to rush 
is just, I still, you know, I, I don't understand how, you know, and I love the people who advise me, but I still don't understand how nobody at that point said, well, let's see, you're, as I said before, like you're pregnant, you're not, you know, I've never told anybody, I never lied about where the dissertation was. I was planning to have a full more, you know, at least one or, or two even more years because I had received the uh, endowed presidential uh, fellowship for UT. You know, I was being successful and there was abundance. There were resources around me, you know, that could have supported me if I just didn't rush. But anyways, that's water under the bridge. Um, but <laughs> okay, that's- so we're talking, I'm sorry. So, so residing in your self-worth, just, I guess, just tell me where I'm wrong. I'm, I'm hearing it's a, uh, it, when you reside in your self-worth, it's about seeing abundance in your life. It's about not being rushed. It's being confident. It's being clear about what you want. Would you say anything else about residing in your self-worth? Like, what I else mean, does it look like? I think that the main thing about that, and this is how I work with uh, clients, and I have to say this is, uh, I, I, I already reached these conclusions early on, but a system that I work with that's called human design is really fantastic. Uh, and kind of, so a lot of what I say is going to be, a, you know, a little bit in that, in that vein, in that language, but according to human design, um, but again, not just according to human design. So I can, you know, we can, we can open this up. What happens when you struggle with your self-worth is that what you do becomes divorced from your passion about doing it. And mm. it's hijacked into a game where you need to prove your self-worth by doing it. And that sucks the oxygen right out of the passion that uh, allowed you to become that person to begin with, right? So, you know, Amen. I, right, I tell my, my what I do with, with blocked academic writers, the th first thing I do when I work with them is trying to find out when was the last time you enjoyed your research, your writing, you know, um, align them back with the passion because, you know, it's not, we could have had, I could have gone many other very lucrative directions uh, as, as somebody with my expertise in, in the media and, you know, literature where, I mean, I had back when I left Israel, uh, there were several very interesting, like in publishing, people were, you know, giving, there were opportunities and I didn't go into industry. So I stayed in academia because I had, I felt I had something to say. I had a voice. I had something that I wanted to contribute. When I found my field, I felt like I love this field, but they're not getting why they have to globalize their, their perspective. So again, you can hear I'm still passionate, although I don't no longer write my scholarship. Like that, those were the things that made me passionate about doing my work. However, when it became about the career and getting the job and, and all of that competitiveness that we have around and this idea of scarcity, right? There's never enough and, and you have to fight for scarcity. I, I started becoming a, a blocked academic writer because in a way, as I said before, it's, it's, it hijacks, I think it distorts your process. It becomes about proving your self-worth and academia is really good at setting up a, a you know like a, a obstacle course prove this and prove that and prove you know so you get your ba great get your ma or you get your ma and you're an honors right role student great now do your phd etc et and then it goes into the get the job and then get tenure um spoiler alert i didn't get tenure <laughs> so ah. Right. And what I try to tell people like, OK, so are you going to tell me that all my achievements that I had until that point in time where for a lot of reasons, you know, I didn't get tenure, that binary, that there's always a moment in time where you can, you know, um, be locked out of proving your worth. It's such a mind, well, game. <laughs> I don't want to curse, but okay. it's, it is it's it's really what made me at the end of the day, although I had, you know, I, I was denied tenure and I left academia, but I had opportunities to go back. And I think, you know, I, di I did not want to go. But once I was out of there, even though I had some really good job of, uh, you know, well, I wouldn't, I don't want to uh, hype it up more than it was, but definitely people asked me to apply for jobs that they had written 
that sounded a lot like my research. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, at that point in time, and it was a long process, but um, I also learned by that point in time to trust myself. And the way that shows up is I was paying attention whether or not I have available energy and my body gets up and goes to my desk and wants to work and starts working on the application for those jobs. And guess what? That told me there was no point in time. This is how I got clarity about it. I saw myself not applying for the jobs. And I was like, oh, I guess I don't want to do it. <laughs> By that time, I really learned to, to trust and listen because I was not trusting and not listening when I was uh, in the, the, the horrible years when I was trying to get tenure and I was massively blocked. And by the way, we can talk, I would love to talk more about writer's block because writer block, writer's block have has many, many, many manifestations. So for example, I'm one of these people that my block looks like me writing a shit tone, excuse my French, um, <laughs> but I'm writing in circles and I'm never finishing, you know? So like p- people also have a very stereotypical idea of what a writer's block is and how it looks. And it's this, you know, oh, the author sits next to the, blank page and has nothing to say but in fact that you know it's just one of many ways in which writer's block can show up for me it was a block of completion um and now i know that a really smart part of me i was i was i was housing a rebel and that part just got up and left and was not willing to participate in finishing the book that would have trapped me (laughs) in that job Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's, in, you know, it's easy to see in retrospect. Uh, it was really, uh, you know, hard to live through. And we can talk more about that, I, I'm, I'm assuming, because I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of, of myself here. Well, um, I, first of all, I just want to say I love the expression housing a rebel because I mean, that, uh, that's yes. totally what happens, right? Like there yep. is a part of you, Martha Beck talks about it as an essential self. There is that essential self part of you yep. that doesn't want to do it and it finds ways to mess with you. And uh, for me, I know my my sort of rebel that I was housing just quit remembering students' names. I used to be really good at remembering students' names and then suddenly I couldn't remember wow. their names at all. It was terrible. Um, wow. And so there's something about me that like you just is just sort of contracting from the work and doesn't want to do it anymore. And you're like, what yes. is going on? Because it doesn't feel rational. Right, yes. I mean, the, the thing with, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that you call it an essential self. In, in human design, we call it, uh, you know, we, we, we call we have the self and the not self. And so, for example, the self would be me aligned with my passion that I know I want to do it. And the not self is when, is, you know, when I let myself get into the ego game of proving, um, et cetera. So, you know, there's this idea of you can have a conditioning that comes from outside and kind of locks you out of your own passion. And I'm saying this without getting at all into the fine, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. points of human design, but that's that's what I really love about that because it allows you to tell people, you know what, uh, there's also this idea of the inner authority, that there's an inner part of you that knows. And when you don't want to do something, this is why I forbid the use of the word procrastination with my clients. I do not believe in procrastination. I believe that when this happens, that uh, pattern of avoidance or whatever you want to call it, you need to pay attention you know, something is not adding up. You are not aligned with your passion for the work. And, you know, either and it could be many things, but a lot of times, you know, you've reached a point of transition and you're not accepting the transition or, you know, what is going on? That's what I do with my clients. I try to understand what is going on that locked you out of doing the work that you want to do. Because we don't go to academia, as I said before, you know, it's not for the big bucks and it's not, I mean, it's because we're passionate about the work that about, you know, we have a voice and we have a contribution. And so reminding people to align with that is, is really the, the basic, the fundamental um, secret sauce, right, of helping them unblock. Is we start with what do you have going that, you know, and then 90% of the time people are just exhausted. Oh, I had a new baby and I'm taking care of my, you know, ailing older parents and this and this and that and you know and 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 I also am supposed to finish a book by the end of fall semester and I'm teaching five classes. Oh, I wonder why you're quote unquote procrastinating. 
You're not. Right, right. But for some reason, it's like against, it goes against the grain of the paradigm because, uh, and one of my most popular videos on, oh, I forgot to say, I also have a YouTube channel. You can also look up the, uh, with the same name, Academic Writers Unblocked. And one of, uh, I think the video that got most views for me um, was uh, attacking uh, the kind of, what I call the bad advice that most academic the few books that are even out there that are uh, directed specifically at academic writers, uh, you know, and, and, and definitely the advice I had gotten from mentors and peers and, you know, people in academia, it's always kind of suck it up, just do it. If you just sit there and do it, it will be done. And, and just like this, you know, yeah, you know, that's, it's lazy advice. I say in that video, you know, it's, it's lazy advice. It's not, uh, engaging the person as a full human being to ask, okay, what is going on that is making you struggle? Um, and it's this and, idea. Oh, go ahead. No. And what I'm hearing is that advice is deny yourself. And what you're saying is no, make space for yourself and allow everything to flow from that space. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because um, if you're just, here's the rub here. If, if you tell people, Oh, just do it. Right. I call it the, just do it. Like that Nike slogan, right? Just do it. Um, and the, if you're not doing it, then you're like procrastinating. That word has such the, the connotations are that you're somehow lazy. Uh, or, you know, I see people coming on my group and they say, I'm struggling with self-motivating. And again, many times it's like what I've told you before, like this person, you know, has, you know, a newborn and a two-year-old and five classes. A, a, you know, I'm like, are you struggling with motivating yourself or are you struggling with taking some time off to recharge and the motivation is already there? So it's this exactly. advice that doesn't acknowledge that, you know, if you're, if you're in academia, you know, if you got yourself into a PhD program and, you, you know, you got yourself, you know, you wrote your dissertation, defended the dissertation, you got a job, you're... I mean, all of a sudden, after all of that time, you're some kind of a lazy loser who does not know how to motivate themselves or, or organize their time. No, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to me. So when people struggle and they're just being told, oh, you know, find a way to motivate yourself or like, just go do it. Um, it's such, it's a, it's crippling advice because it can, it contributes to the cycle of shame and self blame and self criticism. Um, you know, that, that just gets you further and further into stuckness, you know? So I want to know how you did this because listening to you, I feel like, you know, it was like at one point, you know, I was going through all this turmoil and then I knew, I knew to trust myself. I knew to listen to my body, but what did that transition look oh, like? Oh, no, it was, right? it I need was, to know. I wish it was so smooth. No, I paid with blood, sweat and, and tears. Uh, you know, it was really a very long, very um, devastating process. I mean, I've, I've not, I would not have discovered all this if I, I was so um, successful as an academic. I enjoyed an international reputation. Every time I did publish something, uh, right, I started with a newborn and then I had another one, you know, two years later. So my years working on a body of work, I was also, you know, you don't just lose one year for, um, you know, there's the, there's the pregnancy year, there's the newborn year, and like you, you still teach and everything. So um, anyway, so I was, um, but every time I did, managed to uh get up an awesome perfectionist right so that that slowed down my productivity right mm -hmm. uh that word productivity which is another uh problem of a, of current of academia right where they don't read your work to see why it counts they count how many cv lines you have um which is a problem in itself and this is why i feel like i fell out of alignment with the spirit of the organization if you will but Anyways, I was living this life. I um, I was always stressed. I was always trying to prove myself. I still enjoyed a lot of the things. I especially enjoy, you know, organizing. I, I edited, uh, as I said, I edited that, that collection. I edited one Best Edited Collection Award. 
for Society of Cinema and Media Studies, my my home organization, you know, in 2013. And then, you know, I proceeded to also continue to organize uh, conferences and panels and, and another special, double special issue of uh, Critical Studies in Television came out actually after I got denied tenure. So that was, that was funny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was, um, yeah, listen, we, we can get into that. There's always politics involved, but basically I was living the anxious, uh, stressful life. I was teaching two, two, you know, so I was teaching two classes a semester. I, I also was uh, very, um, always drawn to teach like the, the, the writing classes that we, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later. My, uh, my deep passion for writing as a craft and a process. Um, so, you know, I build and designed the curriculum uh, for my department uh, for a class called um, uh, CT, so Critical Theory Through Writing. And it was one of those classes where the class is doing way too many things. It was laying a foundation for media theory and teaching the students how to write. And it was kind of this mission impossible. And, you know, instead of 15, which should be the number of people in the room, it was like 25, sometimes 27 students in the room trying to do that throughout a semester of intensive drafting and redrafting like three or four times just for every paper, just crazy. But I really enjoyed doing that work and I really enjoyed teaching myself how to help support young minds. Like, you know, these were the, the incoming freshmen, like really trying to develop a curriculum that holds a self-compassionate space for them to discover their voice as an right instead of that bad kind of advice that, that just, you know, shames them into writing for the deadline. So mm -hmm. I was, you know, I, I think that was a major part of the part, the rebel inside, right? The part of me that was doing what I needed to do, that was following what I was interested in, was developing all those skills. I also ended up working with six PhD students um, as their main advisor. I was always very good at helping people um, get their best writing done. This is why my collection won the award, because, you know, we the way we uh, curated and, and uh, found the talent, if you will, you know, found the people that would write the chapters that we thought should be in the collection and then really accompany them. This is how you get a collection that's an award-winning collection. And by the way, if you, if you Google any uh, global media class till this day, right, uh, in the United States, uh, global television formats, that's, that's my book, Understanding uh, Television Across Borders, is still widely assigned. I still get the you know royalty check for my half of the you know this is a very successful book. So, anyways, if I look back, right, one of my talents as an academic was always to create collaborations and to edit people and to accompany them as they get through a writing process from A to Z. And I gotta tell you, one of the things that I love telling my students all the time is that. I've unblocked or helped, uh, you know, freshmen, first generation college goers and people about to retire from an Ivy League institution. And they were blocked in very much the same ways, you know, so people from all walks of academia, highly like, you know, um, dinosaurs of my field, you know, people like highly regarded that wrote some of the, the best, uh, most uh influential work in my field when you go behind the scene and you know you see how the sausage is made they all end up facing very similar issues in their writing and so yeah I don't know how I, I see I keep going back to the writing <laughs> process stuff because that's my passion and I am totally aligned that's yeah your, that's yourself not your not self right exactly your, your that's yes yeah and you know and, and one of the things with this I, I mean I will have to I have to say this disproving business I started feeling I think a few years in uh I started noticing um, in like faculty meetings, you know, we would come into faculty meetings in the beginning of the year and every time it was the same thing, we would be uh, 
a message would be conveyed to us from the upper echelons of the university that, you know, oh, you're, you're not, you know, your productivity is not enough in research. And there was always like a threat that the department would lose funding for research, you know, and uh, we would be get, getting more teaching. That's the, the university mindset that you're, you're punished for, you know, if you're not doing well enough in research, you're punished with more teaching, which I, it, it always really irked me because, I love teaching. It should not be perceived as a punishment anyways, but okay, anyways, right? So then I sat there and I was the one in the room. I was that person in the room going like, really though? You know, I would look around and I would see people who have published books, uh, organized conferences, published articles, da-da-da, you know, and, and also knowing and remembering that this one is going through a divorce and that one is a single parent, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et and, uh, knowing everything that they have done for their students as well. And I started feeling a certain kind of way about being constantly bombarded with these messages that it's never enough and we're not doing well enough. And I could, I started realizing that it was very much by design. It was creating this atmosphere of, again, proving you always have to prove. And, you know, and, and that time when your book comes out, it's like, okay, but what's your next book? You know? Right. Um, right. Right. And so I started kind of becoming disillusioned about um, is this for me? Because it felt like, but but again, I was I was very much caught up in that rat race of like trying to get tenure, and uh, I would say to the degree, you know, it becomes obsessive because you're like. It's it's that sunken cost things. I'm I'm already here. I've built a reputation. It's very hard to imagine what you would do if you would not be doing this. You feel passionate about the work you're doing, and now again, and you know, now with with two kids that are older, and you know, stuff happens in their lives. And when you're a perfectionist and you're a, an academic and a mom, you're also up against something very impossible because you're trying to be the perfect mother and you're trying to be the perfect scholar. Uh, and, and and career academic, and that's I just cringed when you said that. Yes, yeah, right. Terrible. I mean, how? Yeah. How? I, I mean, you know, and and we have all of these, uh, you know, social constructs around what it is to be a perfect mother, and then we and you know, I will, I will, if you want to get into it. I mean, I would just say the projections that you get once you become a mother. I feel like some of the colleagues, uh, especially, you know. I, not only, but definitely older white dudes, but not only. Um, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for them because they're projecting onto you that if you are a mom, your focus should be at, in the home with your children, right? And so mm-hmm. if you're asking for an accommodation and a male colleague is asking for the same accommodation because he has children, it's not projected onto him. Oh, I guess we're not, you're not that serious about it. But I felt, you know, and definitely in retrospect, seeing how uh, the fact that I become a mom and the quote, end quote, gaps in my productivity. Um, I mean, it was, I was called out for having, I mean, you could see it's plotting to my pregnancies, right? So like they were, they made this case where I'm like, oh, you know, there's productivity and then there's nothing. Yeah, the nothing is now nine years old. You know what I mean? It's not nothing. I was pregnant oh, and then yes, I had a baby. Yes, yes. So, you know, all of that, that's coded language. That's coded language for, oh, I guess you're not that serious about it. And, you know, and male colleagues that also have kids and are as involved, it's like, oh, wow, look at him. He's very serious about, you know, but there's this assumption that, even though, you know, that colleague needs, uh, cannot teach evening classes, right? Because he needs to be there to pick up his kids from school. It's like, oh, wow, he's a great dad. <laughs> and when you ask to not teach the evening classes, it's like, well, we all know you're not, you know, serious about this here because you have kids. And that's where, anyway, so that's that was a big part of what was going on. Um, so I was talking about sunken costs before. So, you know, a lot of pe- time people get stuck in, even in a PhD program, um, there is this idea that you, you're already, you already put in so much time that you have to put in more time, even if it's killing you. Like just the other day, I got to tell you, I got into a, a bit of a back and forth, not a back and forth. It was, it was very uh, gentle, but there's this Facebook group. I'm not going to name the group, but like one of those um, for PhD 
for graduate students uh, pursuing the PhD who are moms. And I was on this group and this woman is posting on that group that basically she's in the hospital. She's showing that her blood pressure is off the charts and she's obviously having a very hard time. And it's, and she's posting something like, I'm thinking of quitting, you know, oh my God, look at this. My health is, and just the automatic response, like hundreds of people under, no, never quit, never quit. And I came up and I said, can we just say that, you know, perseverance, blind perseverance can be, you know, it's not always merit. Like, why, why aren't we saying, hey, it's obvious you need to recharge. I mean, I'm not telling, nobody else can tell somebody quit or don't quit, but why are we framing this? Is the only available frame quitting? I mean, there are no jobs out there, <laughs> PhD. I mean, I get it. We want to tell a person, well, you're, you're, you're going for it. You're doing your PhD. We want to encourage you. Um, but are you really encouraged them? You know, people are like going on, no quitters, never quit. I'm like, never, never, ever, ever like die. Like what if she dies, <laughs> but she never quit. You will tell her orphans. Oh, but your mama never. Quit. It's just that, that blind, you know, uh, automatic. So I really like to stop and slow down and ask people, you know, if it's killing you and it's not adding up. Cause I wish, you know, honestly, I think my, and again, I'm here where, and you asked me how I learned what I learned. This is how I learned what I've learned. Sitting at my desk, wishing to God, somebody from outside of me would give me permission to not go up for tenure because I knew it wasn't adding up. Although I had my international reputation and a really solid body of work, I was uh, facing a massive writer's block to finish book two, which, you know, how they raise the bar as you get closer, you know, so, oh, you have to finish this book. It was under contract, which was what used to be enough to get tenure. And I actually had colleagues who went up and got tenure with the book not under final contract. I had a book under final contract and it was deemed not enough. Um, But anyways, I was sitting there really struggling and there was, um, what I would want to go back and have is the um, the, the courage to really listen to my own self and hear that I actually don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, it's so interesting what happens there, like your mind, right? Your body knows and your mind is the place where all of those bad messages of like, never quit, blah, blah, blah. It's ideology and it's homogenized hegemonic ideology. And it's not going to mm-hmm. always fit. I would have been years ahead if I, and I was, you know, it would spare me so much humiliation and trauma because going up for tenure and being denied is a really horrible experience. It really, and then the, the, the year when you're teaching through the tenure denial, because, you know, you're not denied once. It's like, it goes up to the department and then, you know, they say yes, but a few of them say no. And then it goes to the college, oh, sorry, to the chair. And then it goes to the college. So it's like this ongoing um, process where they're stripping you of affiliation and you're standing in front of the students and they can smell it off of you. And it, it was just a horrible year. And even what I loved best about, you know, uh, that, that job, which was teaching those students was awful and traumatic as I was so um, devastated by this whole process and had to teach and be there. It was just, anyways, what I'm trying to say is, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just no, thinking, yeah. especially as you come off this, like, uh, what did you say? Kid in the candy store sort of grad school experience yes. and this just super love for for learning what you're learning and just success story after success story after success story. Yeah. And I cannot imagine being on such a high for so long and then getting this right. kind of news. Yes. And also, you know, getting this, uh, I think, I agree with, there's a lot of kind of new, uh, you know, there are new emerging literature of voices like um, uh, the professor is in Karen. I don't remember her last name. Uh, Karen Kelsey, not, yes, yes. Yes. You know, and she talks about the delusion where they're not preparing us in graduate school to understand that it's labor, that we are, you know, we end up, you know, it's a career, you're a, a laborer, um, we, it's capitalism, right? And so it's true. I mean, I really was, as you say, on this high, and I thought, I'm going to live the life of the mind, <laughs> you know, this 
this right. story. And then um, you come in and as I said, like, you know, you, you, you hear in the beginning of the year, your department administrator saying something like, just publish a lot of small, not as significant, quicker pieces so that, you know, the university can count your productivity is higher because they don't count the page numbers. Like, I'm like, really? Ugh. Really? Honestly? Like, is this what we're talking who- about? Right, right. Exactly. Right. So then you start understanding the reality. And again, imagine I could figure it all. I mean, I imagine if I could have sorted it all out and I didn't have my children yet, but you know, a lot of women also delayed the age of having the children. Right. So then you have them in kind of like the last minute that you can because you're so engrossed in your career. So if you if you're going to have it, you're going to have it. And then, you know, it ended up being a very tricky timing for me. Right. So but anyways. Right. So you're like if you have to sort it out and you're child free or, you know, you decided not to have kids or for whatever reason, I, I'm not saying people without kids don't have shit in their lives because they do. And I get it. Um, but you have more bandwidth to get clarity and to see what's, you know, the, to, to kind of understand the environment you're operating in, especially if you come in with this haze of, you know, oh my God, I love this. This is, I'm passionate and I'm living the life of the mind. No, the university job is not about living the life of the mind. It's about teaching. It's about service. It's about a lot of empty gestures of, uh, pretending to do service, which I never, I really sucked at pretend, you know, at saying yes to everything and, you know, bringing food for departmental functions. That, that was never, you know, I was really like, really just all about my scholarship, but I also was allowing myself to take my time with my scholarship. And the more pressure I got uh, from administrators saying it's taking too long, you know, the more, that didn't help me because I was never going to be somebody that was going to be able to churn out fluff. It's just not my passion. And when I tried to, not that I really try to churn out fluff, but like any attempt to conform to that. And I see this with so many of my clients, uh, any attempt to conform with those pressures just blocks them further and further and more because it just pushes them that much further from that passion, from that place inside that's alive um, Absolutely. That you need to be in touch with in order to do academic writing. I will say one more thing. Um, I say this all the time, and also in you know my videos. Academic writing is hard. Full stop. End of story. It's the hardest. You know, I've been doing other kinds of writing, and academic writing, I think, is the hardest kind of writing there is because you know I can get into why, but you know, it's like storytelling but it's also reporting and it's also analysis and it's argumentation and it's explaining that it's you have to bring together so many kind of different modes of writing and and you know and you can only write after you've immersed yourself in research as well so it's just hard to begin with so then if you're trying to balance all of this and your life becomes the real life of a grown-up with children and mortgage to pay and etc. And you're also teaching yourself how to teach because, you know, we are supposed to also be excellent teachers and we are passionate about our teaching. It just doesn't add up. That's that's the that was my experience of it anyways. But yeah, I'll let you I'll let you put a word in. <laughs> I am so inspired by your strength and your confidence because here you are you're denied tenure but then you have these other offers that are coming in and you don't have to leave and you can continue playing the game and you can continue to prove your worth and you can continue to to you know put in more time and show people what you got but you said no at some point you just said no and I want to burst that, like what that took. You know, I want to burst. I mean, in a way, I, I, I wish to de, you know, mythologize this for you. It looked like a person having a really hard time. <laughs> you know, it was not. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, and by the time I was denied tenure, we were in a place where I could take some time off to just, you know, lick my wounds. I was like a, a, a wounded animal, right? And yeah, it was not yeah, pretty. Yeah. 
it was not necessarily pretty, but I did say this. And so maybe that's a point of courage. I took a, like a long, hard look in the mirror and I said, if I need to put my money on someone, I'm going to put my money on me. <laughs> You know, because uh. at every point in my life, you know, I what I did and what I accomplished, it was never conferred on me. It was not about somebody else agreeing to to give me something, right? I always found a way to, to get what was mine, and so this is a you know, so maybe that's a good yeah, that's a good point of departure. I really, really learned firsthand how important dealing with failure is. I know it's now a cliche to say, but it really is true. Uh, you sometimes have to, you know, be stubborn in your ways until there, you know, until failure comes and shows you that when everything else is taken away from you, you still have you. And that was what I, I did discover. So now I, you know, I'm confident and courageous and all of that, but you know, that first year was me sitting on a couch, reading memoirs and writing and allowing myself to be, I guess, to mourn because it was Absolutely. devastating. Yeah. Yes. So. And, and you have to melt down to the point that what really matters starts to emerge because you've been right. just buried in so much crap for so right. long that you just the rock totally bottom. forgot yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. When, exactly. when you hit rock bottom, you find your bottom, the foundation. You find that. Yeah. Yes. You can build yes. back up from there. How about that? <laughs> yes. And so if you, just for listeners, if you have hit your rock bottom, if you are in a place where you've been denied tenure or you are realizing you have to leave academia, even though you don't want to, or whatever it is, if you're feeling that way, I think that that's the sort of first piece of advice. Let yourself melt down. Meltdowns are okay. Right. They're important. They're necessary. You have to do it. And so... What else Absolutely. would you say to listeners, like in terms would, of advice? Right. I would say this. I mean, I started um, in, in that vein where you're in this place. I started um, practicing this mantra that was, oh, good. I am failing. <laughs> you know, oh, good. I am struggling. That's yes. that's good because unless I accept where I am, I can't move forward. Pay attention what doors are slamming in your face and what doors are flying open. Because for me with tenure, I mean, there were so many signs. It was just, I keep saying this, it was not adding up. You know, I could tell that there was like this political thing in the department and this and that and hostility and the, me not wanting to finish that book and not forcing myself and blah, 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 blah. So when your mind tells you, no, you have to, you have to do it. Uh, there's this line from the I Ching, which is the ancient Chinese book of changes. And it says, the prize you are seeking would be the death of you. Um, and you got to ask yourself, oh, is oh right? God. Oh, the I Ching is the best. I really recommend. By the way, you, you now have an app for it. You can go online, <laughs> I Ching online, and you can ah. throw the I Ching. It's really great. Okay. I really recommend I Ching, uh, online .net is a fantastic website where you can throw the itching for free. And actually, when I was in the tenure, in the throes of the tenure battle, I got that line and I was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, the prize that you are seeking would be the death of you. I am so happy I didn't get tenure. You know, I, I am. I'm, yeah. I'm delighted. I mean, we talked about this before we started recording that um, I feel very worried for some of my my colleagues and friends who I uh, still live in the same city. So I have a lot of friends that teach in the university I teach and I, I was denied tenuring um, and they have to go in and teach right now because they're doing this hybrid in-person online thing. And so I feel so fortunate that I got kicked out <laughs> and had to find my way, you know, and, and develop my businesses because I have more than one. I have two Basically, I have the human design coaching business. So what I, we don't like the word coaching, but uh, writing whisperer, right? Uh, and yes, then I have yes, the yes. academic unblock one. And I, I'm really so happy and so fulfilled. I want to say another thing to not myth create a mythology around, you know, I am still very much emerging. So I, um, this is not, you know, um, at this point, I am still not making even the shitty salary I made as an assistant professor. Um, if I needed to, I believe I would. I, as I said, I'm very, very privileged that um, 
there's a salary in the household. Like for years, that was me. I was the the breadwinner. And now, so we've got used to living on one salary in a way, right? So anyways, um, let yourself find a way and let it grow organically and let it align with that part of you inside that knows. And pay attention if you're trying to pry open a door that's forcefully shutting in your face because so many, it's just a mistake. If it's not adding up, and you're insisting on, you know, going against the flow, it's, it's, you're just getting more exhausted, you know? And sometimes a door is opening on, on the side and you're not even paying attention and you're doing all the right things. And the one thing you're not doing is paying attention to what is really going on. I was training myself as a writing coach. I was reading all the books about writing, I was uh, helping all my friends and many colleagues. You know, I was editing. I I was doing the work without charging anybody, right? Um, and I was laying the groundwork for yeah. a much more fulfilled life. I lo- I don't feel like I'm lesser than I. J- you know, because I'm not publishing scholarship. In fact, I feel like I've published all the scholarship. I said what I had to say. I, I made my contribution. I am now writing a lot of different, I'm writing a memoir, I'm writing a self-help book, I am flowing, I am writing, and when I don't feel like writing, guess what? I just don't write. <laughs> and it's so oh much fun. God. Yes, yes. That's fun. I love being more available for my children. Yes. And now with this corona thing happening, I, I, it scares me to think what it, you know, what it would have looked like. But it's not that I couldn't, that I was a bad mom when I had the the academic career I was still a, a great mom um right I made sure but to, to give them what they needed but I also really had this really stereotypical anti-stay-at-home mom kind of thing going on that I really had to revisit my memoir one of the titles I'm, I'm thinking of is called the zombie PhD mom uh, and oh. it was this encounter I had here in the swimming pool with this mom um and, you know, we were taking our kids to both taking our kids swimming to swimming lessons. And I came in with, you know, my my dress from Georgia State. And it's like an indoors in the in the in the winter. And I'm sweating in the, that, you know, beautiful dress for for class. And I was seeing her with her yoga pants, you know, and I was like projecting onto her that she's the stay at home mom. And then I was grading and she was all of a sudden she told me something like, oh, I don't miss the grading at all. And we got to talking and she said she had like a. Uh, a lab in a very prestigious Ivy League university. You know, she was like a biophysicist and I couldn't, I was obsessed with her for months after like, how can you leave all of this <laughs> behind to be the yoga mom, right? All of those projections. Um, but at the time I was struggling with all that I've described to you before. And so my realization in this piece is that I was the zombie PhD mom. I was the walking dead, you know, and she yes, knew yes. something that I couldn't even imagine that you can let go of all of this. And it doesn't mean that you don't have worth. Think about it. Like I created this projection on her that how could she do it? And it's a waste of her education. And she's like a 1950s mom and la, la, la. Um, and that was like a way to scare myself into submission and pun intended submission to the life I was living in submission of manuscripts to journals. You know what I mean? I was trying to scare myself to toe the line and to never quit and blah, blah, blah. And it was killing me. That prize I was looking for was killing me. And I'm so glad I didn't get it. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so good. Okay. So uh, at some point we need to be looking for a book called The Zombie PhD Mom. But what yeah. else would you want to say i mean how can people reach you if they need help so, if they need to get unblocked with their writing absolutely so uh, my uh group on facebook academic writers unblock um is actually exploding i just added 75 more members uh this week yes. and yeah and so this is the best place to see i also have a youtube channel and again it's uh sharon shahaf or sharon shahaf as most americans would pronounce it uh, and you can also look for it uh, by looking at Academic Writers Unblock. If you are interested in a little bit more woo-woo stuff, uh, definitely check out Human Design. I also have a Human De- uh, Unblock with Human Design group. And um, uh, I think by the same name, uh, YouTube channel. I will also say I'm also working on a self-help book uh, for academic writers that's called How to Survive Academia and Write with Joy. Um, 
but I am not putting any deadlines or external pressure. So I am really just trying this new way, which Danielle, we talked about trying a different way where I align with the joy of, of doing the work. And I, I do it out of a joyful, free place. And it's, it's a very, very productive way to actually do things I'm discovering. You know, when I never push, I always want to do it. So anyways, that's... Uh, and, and, and people need you to do this work. Because if you find joy in it, it's, it's so interesting that the people around you find it uh, life-saving and, and life-giving. Right. I mean, that's just how this kind of stuff works. Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell, let me tell, let me tell the listeners this. I can unblock really honestly. I can unblock you and I can unblock you quickly. I am not met an academic or other type of writer that I could not help move on to, you know, from wherever they are and into the flow by, you know, just quickly recognizing what it is that's going on and, um, you know, helping them align. I, I don't want to, you know, give more of a speech here, but like, honestly, if you are struggling, go find me online, look at Academic Writers Unblock and you can find me and, and PM me. I am, um, I, I do so many one-on-one sessions um, and my impact is actually really quick. And I like that. I like, you know, some people hire me for a long-term, like a book coaching or something, but most of the clients I work with, um, I, you know, one or two sessions and they're happily writing and they're moving on and, you know, they can come back like six months later and already have a draft. And then, you know, or if they get stuck again, uh, call me again, but it's really, it's not like this enormous commitment to work. It's not like therapy where you need to do it for years and years and years. Um, it's actually weirdly, I'm, I'm surprised myself. It happens pretty fast. Uh, and last but not least, uh, I, I am running, um, there's this, my signature workshop uh, It's called Academic Writers Unblock. I started running them with Corona. Uh, it was a great opportunity in a way, right, to, to explore how to do them online because before I was teaching them in a writer's studio here in town, uh, in the Decatur Writer's Studio, which is a fantastic uh, uh, writer's studio, but, you know, with Corona, everything is closed. So I took it online and I now do them through my Facebook group. And we just finished the six week series. The first time I taught it online and everybody in the series is, is unblocked. But, you know, yes. I, oh my God. Yes. And, you know, all the way to full professors and I'm hearing really great uh, thing. And, you know, all of them are unblocked and some of them are resting. Like some of them were just burnt out and they gave themselves permission to now recharge and they're like doing some recharging. So it's really, really awesome. So yeah, find me, take my class, look at the videos um, and definitely book a one-on-one if you feel like you're ready to get unblocked in your academic or any other kind of writing. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Yes, um, I'm sure. I can't imagine people aren't going to be seeking you out, especially as you talk about how, how quickly you can do it. That's amazing. Okay, Shadon, I we got to go. But it was so fantastic talking to you. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me today on Self-Compassionate Professor. I'm Danielle Delamar, wishing you a wonderful day and much happiness, health, and peace. Take care.